Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Stanford PhD candidate Francis Moore. During our conversation, Fran talks about the science of climate change, the history of governmental treaties to address global warming, and her research relating to the long-term economic costs of carbon emissions. Fran Moore, first of all, want to do welcome to the show. Thank you uh, so much for taking some time to uh, talk to the listeners. Thank you. So I'd love to start just by learning about um, how you got interested in in climate change as a subject. Was that something that you had learned about early in your academic background, or when when was it that you became interested in, in the subject? Well, I originally became interested in in climate change very generally as an undergraduate when I studied geology, mm-hmm. and in particular, I was studying paleoclimatology. So how how has the climate changed in the past over very long geologic timescales? My research was looking at the Cretaceous, uh, so kind of when, when dinosaurs were around, mm. and some big changes in planetary climate and ocean circulation that happened then. Mm. Um, and so that, after graduation, I moved to Washington, D.C., and that kind of transitioned into an interest in clim- the climate change we're seeing today mm. and the policy solutions to that. And that's kind of, I, I've kind of kept going with that. Um, and I, you know, part of the reason I find climate change such a fascinating topic is that to understand the problem, you need to understand both the the natural sciences, including how our, how our, our climate system works, uh, but also the social sciences of, of mm. the politics and the economics mm. um, that are involved. Mm. And so I just find it a kind of fascinating lens through which to to study ourselves and our planet. And what did you learn when you were studying the, the climate science or the geology of, of the Cretaceous period? I mean, what, what what's the difference between then and now? Well, what's, what's interesting the, the 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 events I studied, which are called oceanic anoxic events, which basically means there were there were periods when it seems as though large sections of the ocean became uh, what's called anoxic, so they they had no oxygen dissolved in them. So you know our our oceans today, by and large, have a lot of lot of oxygen in them. That's how fish can kind of survive in the ocean, right? And and there are these there's this evidence that this was not the case for substantial periods of time, and and in particular that the oceans seem to switch back and forth uh, between between these different states, and and that these switches happen fairly fast, and so. So that's what I studied, but I think more generally what you can learn by looking at the at the um, geologic history of the planet is that these changes changes can happen very quickly um, on very large scales uh, in um, uh, for, to the, in the on the climate system mm-hmm. and and we we feel as though the it's a kind of very large system that should be relatively stable, but we're kind of forcing it in a way that it's never been pushed before. And this kind of, you, you just just by looking at the, the geologic record, this this is going to have large-scale consequences. Mm-hmm. And, and when when the dinosaurs did, did roam in the earth and, and existed, were, were, there, were there large swings in, in climate, the experience of, of the, the temperature of the planet 
um, experienced by dinosaurs at the time? Did it switch rather rather suddenly often, or what, what was it like? Well, it the one one thing is that in that period the um, the the level of carbon dioxide were a lot higher mm-hmm. than the, than they um, are at present. Um, and possibly that's some of the reason that you saw these these big fluctuations in ocean, in how the ocean was circulating, that the, that, that these these two these two things were kind of linked. Mm. Um, in terms of temperature, I'm not really sure. I mean, the temperature was a lot higher because there was a lot more carbon dioxide in uh, in the atmosphere. Um, there were no ice caps, for example. Um, but 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 the the trouble with the fluctuation is that you you can't really cap. So so you know where we're raising temperature on a kind of decadal time scale, right? I mean, it's going up and you can measure that with thermometers, right? But when you go back to Cretaceous, what you're trying to use to measure this is, is rocks, right? And, and the, the resolution of those rocks is not very high. So it's hard to capture these kind of the short term fluctuations like we see with climate change today, but you do, you do see bigger swings in, in, uh, uh, kind of longer times over longer time scales you see you see fluctuations in temperature and and you know bear in mind this is all you know this was you know there weren't any humans around putting co2 into the atmosphere so there's the the earth system is not necessarily a kind of stable perfectly stable system even without the the forcing that that humans are doing let's move to today so this this issue of global warming or climate change um, you mentioned that you lived in D.C. W- was that something when, when you moved to D.C. that was a, was, a, was already a hot-button issue? It was something that people were talking about, or was it still sort of in the background? No, actually, when, when I moved there, which was 2006, um, it was a very it was, it was a very kind of prominent, prominent issue. It was right around... People had started... I was, over that time period, people were talking very much about the international climate negotiations, and uh, there was a lot of discussion about what would happen kind of to replace the Kyoto Protocol that was due to expire. And so it was, this was in the lead-up to what, what was ultimately the, the Copenhagen climate negotiations. And so there was a lot of discussion about what should a global climate treaty look like that should that should replace Kyoto, um, and then what what is the kind of U.S. role in that? Mm. Uh, given that you know the Congress, even at that time, I think there wasn't it wasn't clear that it was it was clear there wasn't going to be a kind of major action on the part of Congress at that time. What did what did Kyoto stand for? What what did it do? And, and what were the proposals of the change of what the Copenhagen plan would look like? Yeah, so so Kyoto was really so so. In 1992, there was an international agreement called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, where all the countries, more or less a lot of countries, agreed to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate. That's kind of the the technical objective of of the convention. And so the U.S. is a signatory to that, and so has that as official U.S. law um, that that we, we, we want to try and avoid that. Um, and, but the question is, how do you actually do that? And Mm so, and so in order to achieve the objective of the convention, you, the countries negotiate to put in place actual protocols that are designed to achieve those objectives. And the Kyoto protocol was, was the the first protocol under the framework convention on Mm -hmm. climate change. And, and what it did was it, it more or less kind of committed the developed countries 
to reduce their emissions. Um, Carbon emissions. CO2 emissions, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then developing countries could kind of voluntarily participate in reducing emissions through an through a offset trading scheme. And that was in place. It had to be ratified by a lot of countries. It was never ratified by the United States. Um, so the United States was not a participant, was never participated in that protocol. But the European Union did, Russia did, uh, Canada, Japan, Australia, mo- most of the other developed nations were, were participating. And, and so that was in place from... I believe it was 2007 to 20... Definitely, it expired in 2012. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, what what it was... was kind of a good first step to try... In trying to, to do this. And, and what it was really trying to do was kind of... Look at emissions globally and, and allocate who should reduce emissions where and do it for, in this very top-down way. And I think what you're seeing emerge now is a much more of a bottom-up type of international climate policy where you see countries kind of pledging, we think we can do this, we think we can do this, um, and, and you know, hopefully in some way those are going to add up to something, mm-hmm. something meanif- meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not totally clear that's the case. So, yeah. <laughs> and the countries that, that did um, sort of force themselves lawfully to abide by the Kyoto Protocol were they did they themselves monitor their reduction in emissions or, or how did they gauge whether or not they met their objectives yeah so it was all it was all quantified and so they're all they're all um, measuring what you know what they what they're emitting and and the the baseline was 1990 and so did you reduce by x percent below 1990 levels and so mm-hmm. this was the EU so the EU set up a carbon market to, to try and do this Um and other countries have tried to do it in other ways. Um, so they, they set the, the the bar of where how many how much carbon they were emitting in 1990, and they, they wanted to make sure they were it was going in it going downwards. Yeah, yeah. Was it was it five percent down or? 10% yeah, that's a good or? question. I don't. I know. I can't tell you the answer off the top of my head. Um, something in that. Direction. It was it was something on the order of five percent, I think, below 1990. It was something kind of altogether. Um, and were, were these reductions that were recommended by the scientific community or they were created by politicians? Well, I mean, the, the scientists can't really tell you what you should do, you know? So the so science can tell you that climate change is happening and it can tell you that it's caused by humans. And it can tell you that if you do this course, then these are the consequences. But the, the question of choosing among those different consequences is, is a kind of has, there's a lot of values involved in doing that. Mm-hmm. And, um, kind of it's legitimately the domain of, of political discourse, you know, and, and, and so, so it was, I think it's in, it's, it's targets that are to some extent informed by science. Um, but they're, they're not kind of scientific mm-hmm. facts in the same way as a, you know, the climate is warming and it's caused by humans as a scientific fact. Right. So, so in the United States, you mentioned it wasn't ratified and we never became mm-hmm. legally bound to, to stand by the, the Kyoto Protocol. What was going on here that, that caused the pushback or why was it that the U.S. didn't do it? Yeah, so this is, um, this is not totally my area of expertise, um, but this was in... 1992, no, sorry, that's not right. 
it was in it was it was the, the, there was a I believe there was a Republican Congress. I'm pretty sure. And to get to to ratify international agreements in the United States, you need to have a supermajority in the Senate. No, you need more than that. I think you need. You should probably like not, <laughs> not this but I think you need seventy seventy um, senators. I think you need even more than you need to break a filibuster. I'm pretty sure. Um, and it's, so it's a really hard bar, right? And and so it was always going to be difficult to do. And the 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 Senate in particular did not like the idea that there would be mandatory emissions reductions for the developed country and and no mandatory emissions reductions for developing countries, and kind of expressed the opinion in the, in a letter to the president that any any agreement that that involved that kind of compromise would would, would be unacceptable, and and the Kyoto Protocol did that. Um, and so it, I don't think it was even brought to the Senate for ratification. And the countries, they, the developing countries, I, I would imagine that they were interested in, in locking into the Kyoto Protocol were, were countries like China, I would, I would imagine? Yeah, so, so it immediately got ratified by, by most of the developing countries because they kind of had not much to lose and, and some stuff to gain from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've participated through the what's called the Clean Development Mechanism, which is, so if you know, if I'm a country and I, I need to reduce my emissions, but it would be quite expensive for me to do so, I could go to, say, say India and, and invest and, and pay them to to um, reduce their emissions through some projects and then take those credits and, and, and um, take those emissions reductions and use them as a credit for my own obligations. So from that time to now, uh, you know, the, the early 90s until until today, or, or maybe maybe the time when, when you got to D.C., it seems like the issue of global warming and climate change did grow, at least in in public recognition, uh, not necessarily in, in unanimity or agreement mm-hmm. by the public. Um, was it really an inconvenient truth, you think, that, that really spurred that conversation? Or, or what, what few things do you think were, were responsible for bringing it to the public's attention? Yeah, I think around that time you saw a few things. So, so inconvenient truth came out, and that I think it did get a lot of attention. To some extent, I think it it maybe polarized the debate in a way that was not necessarily helpful. Uh, I think because you saw Al Gore up there making this argument, a lot of people it became much more of a oh this is a democratic issue rather than this is something that we should all be worried about. You also, around that time, saw the release of the fourth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that came out in 2007. And you also saw kind of Al Gore and the IPCC be awarded the Nobel Prize. Mm. And, and there was, so there was a kind of nexus of, of positivity around doing something around climate change right around that time. And I think we kind of almost felt, oh, we've solved this, this issue of, of establishing climate change as a fact. And then I think after that, you saw some of those gains somewhat go away, uh, um, and I think and I think now that's starting to change again. Uh, yeah. What What did the report say? The two thousand and seven report. What was in it? Well, I mean, do you want to talk about that? Or there's, there's been a more recent report since then. Well, let's start there and then. Okay. So well, that's a tough question because I, you know, um, well, it's, it's a lot, very long report, um, but more or less it said. Climate change is happening, and it is it is probably caused by humans. And then in the more recent report, you saw climate change is definitely happening, and it's very likely caused by humans. And so, the the, the overall what you've seen is that the overall 
scientific understanding has not changed, but the confidence with which we can make these statements has increased over time. And so, yeah. You mentioned the phrase climate change. I've used both climate change and global warming. What's the difference? Is it just the same thing being used in different contexts for different reasons? Or what, is there a difference between climate change and global warming? I, I, I don't kind of have strong, strong feelings uh, about that distinction. Um, I think some people feel that climate change is a more accurate description because it encompasses lots of different changes rather than simply uh, a warming warming temperatures and that it's it's kind of inaccurate to to associate um the problem of climate change simply with warming which some people might understand by the phrase global warming because in reality the, the earth is warming but it's also doing other things as yeah. well is that yeah. right yeah yeah um how about how about more recently? I, one of the subjects I, I wanted to cover with you is is the the economic impact of of climate change and, and a report that that you co-authored. Before I do that, I'd love to to talk about uh, an issue you brought up earlier, which is that, but prior to humans actually existing, as you mentioned, there were massive changes in in climate. Um, what's the reason that we're that there is a growing scientific confidence that? It really is human caused. We are playing a, truly a role in what's what's happening in the change of the climate. So, so there's there's m- multiple lines of evidence for this, right? So, I think one thing that's important to understand is that there's no one piece of evidence that that leads us to this conclusion. It's it's a whole range of of different lines of evidence that point to the same conclusion. And that's why we can have confidence. And even if one of those turned out to not to be true, there's all other reasons to, to believe this. So one, one, one really obvious um, point is, is just that the rate of change that we're seeing is so different from what, what we've seen in the past. And that, so, so even though you could, you know, I, I was kind of saying you, you can have these very rapid changes on geological timescales. Geological timescales are still, you know, fastest 10,000 years. So the fact that we're able to measure changes in global temperature over the course of decades is really unusual. That that that's 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 a rate of change that you do not see in in kind of natural processes at the global scale. Um, there's there's all sorts of other lines of evidence. Well, you know, a very simple one is is we know we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and we we've known for over a hundred years that that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas that traps the outgoing radiation from the Earth's surface and reflect and, and emits it back to the surface. And so if it weren't raising temperature, we would, there would be a lot of explaining to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the energy that's associated with that needs to be going somewhere. And, and if it's not raising the, the, the temperature of, of either the surface or, or the ocean, then there's a big question mark about what exactly is going on. And so we would have to kind of reevaluate a lot of our other understandings of, of pretty basic physics and chemistry. Mm. Um, and then there's all kinds of other reasons. Um, a, a big reason is that the reason we know the warming we're seeing is, is due to greenhouse gases is greenhouse, as I said, greenhouse gases trap outgoing radiation, right? And reflect it and emit it back to the surface. And because of that, what they do is they, they, warm the lower part of the atmosphere but they cool the upper part of the atmosphere because they're preventing radiation that would otherwise warm the higher parts of the atmosphere and that's exactly what you see when you look at the long-term temperature trends that we've seen a warming here at the surface but if you look higher up 
uh, in the stratosphere, you, see, you actually see a cooling. Mm. And that's very consistent with the pattern of warming you'd expect from greenhouse gases. Mm. You mentioned just the pace of change and the, the pace of the alteration of, of the climate is just uh, so much larger than, than in geological time spans. Is that, is that change specifically in the change of, of global temperatures or something else? I mean, global temperatures is the, is the one that, firstly, it's, it's very easy. It's easy for us to measure today or, or easier than... It's a, it's a metric that's fairly, fairly easily measured. Um, and it's also a metric that for which we have fairly good proxies so that, so, you know, we don't, we don't have thermometers that go back millions of years. No. So instead you look at particular signatures in, in rocks or old corals or tree rings, um, that can tell you about temperature. And, and so there, there's a fair number of that, that are fairly good at, at, at telling you about temperature. And so that's why that's kind of been a, been a focus so yeah, most mostly it's about temperature. And, and how 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 quickly is the temperature increasing? And, and is it everywhere in the world is is going up? Yeah. So so on average, the the amount of warming we've seen over the last about hundred and thirty something years. So since the start of the industrial revolution, is about 0.8 degrees Celsius per year. No, altogether. altogether. <laughs> yeah. So globally, so yeah. 0.8 degrees Celsius. Um, and to put that in perspective, the the difference between globally, in terms of the global average temperature, the difference between uh, an ice age and an, inter an interglacial, which is what we're in now, is on the order of about one degree Celsius, or might be slightly less. So, so that's the kind of the magnitude that we're, we're talking about. So even though it seems like not a large number, it's, it's really it's really pretty large when you're talking about global average temperature. And then you have seen it, you have seen um, increases everywhere, but you see larger increases in certain locations. Mm -hmm. And in particular, you see larger increases in the Arctic because there you have this process of, um, it's called albedo feedback. And so albedo is just how much the of incoming sunlight is reflected off the Earth rather than absorbed. And if it's absorbed, then it heats up the Earth. So in the Arctic, you have a lot of ice and snow, and that reflects a lot of sunlight. But as the temperature warms, you get less and less ice and snow. And so more and more, more, and more incoming radiation is absorbed, and that, that makes it hotter, which, which provides its feedback. And so in the Arctic, you see rates of warming that are about three to four times faster than the global average. You mentioned that uh, some, some numbers since the, the, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Is the, is the pace of the increase in, in temperature going up in recent years, in the last 10, 20, 30 years? That's, that's a good question. I believe the answer would probably be no, because... You know, climate is a very is a long term phenomena, and then if you're thinking about changes in climate, then you're looking at you're already thinking about very long time scales, and there are there are variations in the Earth system associated with oscillations in the ocean and atmosphere that can occur over fairly large de kind of decadal time scales, mm -hmm. and so what you've seen over the last fifteen years is a what's come to be called be called a hiatus in warming, where the rates of warming have actually flowed fairly substantially and it's unclear w why that is there's a, there's a lot of fairly clear evidence it's probably got something to do with oceanic circulation and and the fact that we really haven't had a strong el nino uh, in the last in the last decade and a half 
And in addition, there's, be, there's some evidence that there's been a kind of increase in volcanic activity and vol volcanoes put out sulfur dioxide, which tends to cool the planet. And so the, some combination possibly related of the two of those is probably responsible for this. But it's definitely an area of, of active, active research. And even though the, the, maybe the rate of increases is, is decreasing, is, it, is the temperature overall still going up to some degree? Yeah, so you saw 2014 is, is kind of in, in most records. I think in all the, all the global temperature records now is, is the hottest year, was the hottest year on record. Mm -hmm. and, and regionally, and you, see, you see records being broken really consistently. And if you look at the, re the ratio of warm records being broken to cold records, it's much, much in favor of the warm records, mm -hmm. which is very much what you'd expect with a you know, consistent with global warming. Mm -hmm. So we, we live in a country where there's some serious disagreement about what's going on with, with climate change mm -hmm. and, and not only what's going on, but what should, what should be done about it. Mm -hmm. You co-wrote a paper about sort of the economic impact of how the climate is changing and what that will mean for our economy. Mm -hmm. um, what have we learned? What are your conclusions that you've reached from, from your research? Yeah, so, so what we were doing in this paper is... We were looking at the quantity called the social cost of carbon, and that that the social cost of carbon is simply the damage, economic damage associated with an additional ton of carbon dioxide. And so, if I emit one ton of CO two today, that's going to have effects, you know, for decades into the future. And I'm going to add all those up and and discount them, you know, into the future, which just means things that happen far into the future, I don't worry about as much. And add them all up and come up with one number, and that's called the social cost of carbon. And it's it's equivalent to economically the tax, the the efficient tax that you would that you would put on carbon dioxide emissions. Mm -hmm. So when people talk about a carbon tax, the level at which you would want to do that would be equal to the damages associated with each ton of CO two. And the the values that have been around in the literature have been around. 30 to $40 per ton of carbon dioxide. And the value used by the U.S. government in a kind of official, they went through an official process where they, they came up with a number is $37 per ton. And so what my, my co-author and I, I did in this paper was to look at some new evidence that's, that's been recently published showing that climate change might not just, might, might affect, directly affect economic growth rates. And this is something that, that the models have a, kind of assumed was not the case and that instead climate damages simply fall on your output in a given year, but that other, otherwise your, your ability to grow and develop is, is basically unaffected by climate change. And the reason that's so important is that if you have effects on economic growth, they really add up year over year to, to come up to really large numbers. And so what, what we did was take one of these estimates that's in the literature as to how large these effects were and put them in, put it into an economic model of, of climate change to come up with a new value of the social cost of carbon. And we found that that value increased by about six times. So, so our value, the, our estimated value is about $220 per ton. And that's long-term damage. Is that right? Is that, yep. is that the, for the, for the duration of, of having that carbon in the atmosphere, what, how mm -hmm. that would affect an economy? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Though the emissions go up and, and mo a lot of the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a very long time and it has a kind of continuing effect on, on, the, on the economy. 
but you you do discount into the future and so economically though those very long run effects tend to not be so important mm. um, and so that's been a kind of source of debate in the climate economics literature about how much should you discount but we we find ev even using standard discount rates of, of about three percent uh, per year that it's still that the damage associated with climate change is still very large. So you said six times the thirty-five, thirty-seven dollar amount, so a couple hundred dollars per ton. Yeah. I was mentioning before we, we did the interview that I, I read an article in, in the National Geographic about a month ago regarding projected damage to to one state in the U.S. of, of Florida, primarily to the, the coastal cities like Miami and Tampa, and I think primarily they were focusing on the damage that would take take place in regards to. Um, real estate. Mm -hmm. And the projections were something like by the end of the century, it would be in the hundreds of billions of dollars of damage potentially. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that, it, you mentioned earlier that it, people see Al Gore giving a PowerPoint presentation about a subject and immediately think that's a democratic uh, issue. For fiscal conservatives that are generally voting Republican, do you find that there's an increased interest in learning about these things because that's going to affect their bottom line. Yes, I think I think it's true that to the extent people are beginning to feel the effects of climate change that they they want to do something about it. The question of whether they whether what they want to do about it is reduce emissions or is what they want to do about it kind of build protection along the coast to protect their house is those are two quite quite different responses and mm. and one of them Want, you know, to in order to kind of protect coastal Florida, you can kind of try and do that without necessarily making much of an argument around climate change. You could you can kind of say, well, look, the seas are rising; they might keep rising, you know, and and we need to do something about it. And you don't necessarily need to convince people of of climate change in order to do that. In order to get people mobilized around actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you really need to make that connection that the impacts you're seeing here and now are related to, to greenhouse gas emissions. And that's, that's a pretty tough, scientifically and just as a communication point of view, it, that's a kind of tough thing to do. Mm -hmm. oh, one, one example, I, I spent a lot of time studying agriculture as well. And, you know, people, people always ask me, yeah, I study how farmers adapt to climate change. And people always ask me, well, we wouldn't expect to see adaptation in the U.S. because, you know, farmers tend to be conservative bunch and they tend to not, not believe in climate change. But I think, you know, you, you look at what farmers do and how they respond to changing weather conditions and it's pretty clear that they're, they're going to be adapting to, to climate change as it happens, independent of whether, if you ask them, do you believe in climate change, whether they say yes or no, you know, because it, it is a, a bottom line issue. Do you find that they're they're already adapting, and do you also find that they're changing their mind about climate change? Well, so I, I look I look mainly, mainly in Europe, uh, and there it, it's it's really hard to tell. What what we can say is that it looks like climate trends, so so changes long term changes in climate have, appear to have affected yields in Europe, and and have particularly severe impacts in in certain locations. You, what you can't tell from that data is whether or not people have been adapting that. So I think something I'd like to do in the future is, is go to those regions and start talking to people, actually ask them whether or not they've, they've experienced these changes. So here we are in 2014, and this issue is, is coming up in, in many nations on Earth, including this one. Do you think there 
from here on out, there are things that we can do to primarily avert the problem altogether? Do you think we're at a point where we're going to have to deal with at least some of the major consequences and adapt from there? Where, where kind of are we in terms of the range of possibilities of, of what we as Americans and as human beings can, can do? I mean, I think, I think it's easy to, to be very pessimistic about this, but I don't think that that's the case. I think we still have a lot of options open to us. And we, I, th I think what we, what we do need is for the globally for emissions to begin declining. And to the extent you can slow the rate of emissions growth and gradually cause it to peak and start declining, you're, you're going to make a major, major advance in terms of limiting the overall temperature increase over the next century. Does that mean there won't be any impact? No, but, but to the extent you can try and manage the level of temperature increase, you can then make those impacts much more manageable and, and kind of keep them within the realm of things we could kind of plausibly and with you know, fairly little dis disruption or cost be able to adapt to. As I understand it, the, the way that, that scientists view the, the carbon count in terms of a metric is parts per million. Mm -hmm. that is, you know, that's, a, that's a measurable quantity that, that we mm -hmm. can fairly accurately know. Mm -hmm. Where are we right now and, and where do we need to be? I think, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the kind of the, the measurement station in, in Hawaii that, that measures this um, has been measuring concentrations above 400 parts per million uh, for the... For, for, you know, kind of a few months now. And, you know, so when I was learning about this originally, when I was back in um, undergrad, you know, everything was about 380 parts per million. And that was where we were. So, so over the course of about 10 years, we've gone increased by, by 20 parts per million. And a lot of, a lot of the, the metrics you see are around a doubling of, of CO2. And so that would get you up to 560 parts per million. And we're pretty sure we definitely don't want to be there. Mm. And so, but in between, there's the big kind of gap as to where exactly um, should we be and sh where, where should we be aiming. And the, the governments have agreed to try and limit temperature increase to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And in order to do that, it's pretty clear you need to start reducing emissions fairly soon, mm. as in the next five to ten years. You know, the way I see it is the more you do, the earlier, the better. And there's no kind of one threshold above which impacts are terrible and below which there are no impacts. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a gradation and there are definitely some, some nasty things that could happen at the, at the higher levels of warming. Um, but you, but the, the more you can do the better. And, you know, we certainly shouldn't, we certainly should be doing more than we're doing right now. It seems pretty clear. And so the, so how do you start getting moving and then how do you kind of ratchet it up as you show that it's possible and, and not as costly as I think people are worried about. Part of the show has been about economics, and I think one of the major concerns that people have, rightly or wrongly, about doing something about global warming or climate change is that it would impact our economy. People might lose jobs, et cetera. Um, are there models in the world that you would look to, countries in the world that you would look to, who have sort of approached this issue in the right frame of mind, understanding that this is potentially a jobs issue, but it's also sort of a moral and, and a huge social issue that we're facing, too? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so, I mean, there are there are some models out there for, for certain types of policy. I think California is actually one, particularly for energy efficiency. If you look at kind of what the, the average Californian is, is responsible for in terms of energy use, it's much lower than the, than the national average. And that was through a series of, of policies that came in force, you know, after the, I think in the 1980s and, you know, 1990s that gradually ratcheted up and gradually made people, you know, more aware of energy efficiency, you know, buy new energy efficient appliances. And over time, those, those actions, they, they seem very small, but they really add up to, to, to pretty big numbers. I think in terms of deployment of renewables, you can kind of look to Germany that's seen big, big uh, gains in its solar industry, largely through a lot of subsidies. Um, but, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't normally think of Germany as a hotbed of solar power and yet they, they have large capacity installed there for solar power. And so none of these none of these is kind of enough by itself, but. I think we're starting to see enough action that you can look at it and 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 see that this is the, the this could be the way forward. Mm-hmm. Last question I want to ask you is about individual people. We were just talking about individual countries, but what what can feasibly an individual person do to um, sort of be on the right side of this issue from from your perspective? I mean, I think I think there are a lot of individual actions that probably people are, are fairly well aware of at this point. You know. Be, be cognizant of energy use. Um, I think a, a big one from a personal standpoint is eating less meat. That might be something people aren't aware of, but emission, greenhouse gas emissions from livestock are, are fairly large. And I think for, for some people, it might be a major component of their um, carbon footprint. Um, but I think, you know, you need at this point, especially for people that are, have been worried about this for a while, we're kind of, we're probably almost tapped out on, on doing those things. And I think, being aware that this is a collective problem and it's a collective action problem and that you need to be exerting pressure on your elected representatives who are responsible for this and or responsible for doing something about this collectively and you know writing letters and lobbying you know and getting involved in that in that way is is important at this point in u.s kind of um in the u.s political scene one follow-up on that. I know you were mentioning you know, eating less meat would be a way to, to reduce your carbon footprint. I assume that's because of the, just the amount of transportation costs it takes to not only uh, transport livestock, but also to raise them. Um, what, what are the major sources of, of fossil fuel emissions in the world? What are the, the top two, three, or four that, um, that do exist right now? Yeah, well, so so life, livestock, it's, it's some of the transportation, but there's a lot also, they uh, emit a lot of methane, mm-hmm. um, cows and, and the, the waste from feedlots and, and things is responsible for a lot of methane, which is a really powerful greenhouse gas. So, but in terms of globally, where do, where do greenhouse gas emissions come from? Um, there's... Uh, you know, so so the transportation sector, so so oil by and large is, is used in the transportation sector, um, and in the U.S., I want to say that's about twenty five percent of of emissions. The energy sector is ba- the the sorry the the electricity sector is large, and and that's a lot of coal. Um, and coal uh, is a for each each unit of power that it produces, it produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, and so so that's that's a big source of emissions. And then natural gas is also a, a kind of component of that too. Um, 
land use change. So globally, deforestation might be around 15% of, of emissions. So that's kind of cutting down and burning, burning forests. Other other source, similar sources like peatland. To the extent you're converting peat, you you um, emit a lot of you you allow a lot of carbon to escape the soils. Um, yeah, and then and then some, some industrial uses. So you know, to the extent industry is is using its own power, or cement production also releases CO two directly. And so that's a kind of small component, fairly small component globally. But 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 transportation and then oh and then heating so so uh, kind of direct burning of fossil fuels for heating is is another big component. Grant, thank you so much for taking the time and coming right. on the show. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.